Please listen carefully. Psych Essentials is a show about learning psychiatry. It's fun and educational, but should not be taken as medical advice or opinion. So kick back and try not to worry about those glaring ego deficits. We like you anyway. Hey, Lindsay. Oh, hi, James. I was just having a dream that I was listening to the most informative psychiatric education podcast. Well, that sounds like a great dream to me, and I'm glad you were getting some sleep because today we are talking about sleep medications. I'm excited. We can't talk about sleep medications without talking about sleep. Sleep is simple because we do it every day and complicated because we don't really know how it works. What's the general sense of what is involved in sleep? The way I like to think about it is that some parts of your brain are helping you be awake and other parts are promoting resting. So you can imagine one part's going up and one part's going down. If you were trying to, for instance, design a medicine that would help you fall asleep, you could either stop the one that's keeping you awake or boost the one that's putting you to sleep, right? You could act on either end of that seesaw. Mm Mm-hmm. And in fact, people have done both. We'll talk about medicines in a little bit. There's a great New York article about the process of building sleep medications. We'll put a link to that on our website. It'll be interesting to see because the drug they've talked about may not have panned out in exactly the way that they thought it would. Not being able to sleep is a disorder. And that's what we call insomnia. There's so many different reasons why insomnia might be going on for someone. Right. I mean, there's lots of medical diseases that, you know, pain can lead to poor sleep. It can also, insomnia is very common in many psychiatric illnesses. Sometimes medications can interfere with sleep. There's a whole host of things. Absolutely. There's tables and tables of things that can cause insomnia. So insomnia is not usually considered a psychiatric illness per se, but it is kind of part of your brain and it's so common that we see it a lot. For instance, In depression, sleep and how you're sleeping is part of the diagnosis. It's important to start by addressing or at least considering, are there other reasons somebody isn't sleeping well? But sometimes insomnia can just happen for no reason. So how do you know when insomnia needs treatment? I mean, I think all of us have had insomnia on occasion. Definitely. I mean, I can think of all sorts of examples of not sleeping well, right? Like the night before. Traveling. Yeah. Step one, I got really anxious and I didn't sleep very well. Sometimes after I watch a movie, that's really scary. Mm -hmm. I can't sleep or I don't know about you, but sometimes I eat a lot right before I go to bed. (laughs) I can't go to sleep. So there's like so many reasons, right? Why there might be changes in how we're sleeping. Yeah. The key distinction is is this happening on an ongoing basis? So is this more than just one night? And is it causing problems? If it is causing problems, how do you start to treat insomnia, I guess? Even though we don't know exactly what's causing sleep, sleep is a behavior. It's something that we do. And like any behavior, there's ways that we can shape behavior. So for instance, sometimes people refer to sleep hygiene, and this is gonna make a lot of sense, not drinking caffeine late in the day, not drinking a lot of fluid so that you're having to go up and go to the bathroom, having your bedroom be a quiet place, a dark place, Mm -hmm. a place that's comfortable. Now, there's also evidence for therapy here because we're talking about behavioral techniques. Right. I've heard a lot about CBTI. 
with. I know it involves stimulus control and sleep restriction, those two things. So trying to stay out of the bed unless you're sleeping or having sex, I believe, are kind of like the two activities that are allowed. And then trying to like compress your your sleep into like a shorter amount of time so you're not having all this time where you're laying in bed just awake. Absolutely. And often when people are laying in bed, they're thinking a lot. Cognitive behavioral therapy is thinking about your cognitions and some of it is looking at the behaviors that you're doing. There's lots about CBTI and if that's something that you're interested in hearing more about, let us know. We'd be happy to talk about it. James, if this episode is about pharmacology, why have you spent so much time not talking about medications? Because most of the time, medications are not a solution for addressing this problem. Sometimes they can help people fall asleep in the short term, but you're not actually correcting the underlying issue. Mm. For instance, let's say that somebody had high blood sugars and you thought they were pre-diabetic. You could start medication, but you're not fundamentally changing some of the physiologic processes that are happening in the same way that you might by altering things like what they're eating and their diet and their exercise. Similarly here, it takes more time, but addressing some of these behaviors is actually more effective at changing what you want to change, and it's less risky. If that was not convincing to you, it was also noted that these other things are first-line treatments by all of the major medical groups, like the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, the British Academy. They recommend the behavioral treatments? Absolutely. Before and often instead of and often not sleep medications. But this is an episode about psychopharm, so... So let's talk about medications. (laughs) There are six types of medicines. Some of them we've already talked about, and I'm going to refer you to prior episodes. The first one is benzodiazepines. Like you said last time, benzodiazepines affect your GABAminergic system and generally lead to sedation. And so in that way, you are more likely to fall asleep. So when they study benzodiazepines, they reduce the sleep onset. That means you fall asleep faster. And they increase the total sleep times, the amount of time you're asleep. However, they clearly affect your sleep architecture because they're also reducing the amount of time that you spend in deeper REM sleep. They also impair your memory. Okay, so first class is benzos. What is our next class? Next class are the sedative hypnotics. These are also called the non-benzodiazepine benzodiazepine receptor agonists. Well, that just flows right off the tongue, doesn't it? It sure does. These also affect GABA, and they bind at a particular type A receptor. It's more specific than just a bulky benzodiazepine. Because they're more specific, they're not acting on the kind of anxiety receptor. So if you took something like Ambien, which is in this class, it's not going to make you less anxious per se. It's also not going to work as a seizure medicine because it's not binding to that part of the receptor. There are three medicines in this class, and they're often called the Z drugs because it's Zolpidem, which is Ambien, Zaloplon, which is Sonata, and Ezoclone, which is Lunesta. These three have different half-lives. So in order, Zalplon is the shortest. It acts in an hour. Zolpidem is more like two hours. also comes in this spray form and this like longer-acting form, which is actually the same pill. It's just been rebranded. It dissolves more slowly. And then Ezopiclone is the longest one. It's more like six hours, up to nine hours in older patients. So that can be a really long time. Okay. 
So that's the second category, and we'll return to those because those are the most common ones, and I bet the things you thought of when you heard sleep medications. Third is the category called melatonin agonists. So this isn't just melatonin. It's a specific molecule that's binding to the melatonin receptor, which, as you'll call, is in... The suprachiasmatic nucleus, clearly. Nice call. It actually binds more strongly than melatonin itself. This medicine, there's one in this class. It's called remelteon because it kind of sounds like melatonin, like mm -hmm. remelatonin. That's the only one that's approved in the U.S. In fact, this medicine was actually denied in Europe because it was felt to not have sufficient evidence to actually be effective. Mm. You can take that as you will. There's also medicine called Tazamelteon, which was also approved in the U.S. for this specific disorder that primarily occurs in people who are blind and aren't receiving the same sort of light cues. Oh, I didn't know about that one. It's obscure. Okay. Tazamelteon. And so Remeldeon, not particularly commonly used, but it is acting on the melatonin part of your brain, which sets your circadian rhythm. So what's our next class? Fourth. TCAs, or tricyclic or tetracyclic antidepressants. We talked all about these two episodes ago, so I'm going to refer you back to those. Generally, these act on your serotonin and norepinephrine systems. Number five, orexin receptor antagonists. So remember at the beginning I was saying you can either stop being awake or increase your sleepiness? Mm -hmm. Orexin is a molecule in the hypothalamus that increases your wakefulness so if you block it or antagonize it you're going to be less awake and therefore more potentially asleep yeah and i thought the orexin receptor antagonist is kind of like a newer medication to to come out totally this is and there's only one so far in this category suvorexant it hasn't actually been compared directly against these other treatments so i couldn't tell you this is more effective or less effective but like the other ones it's not a long-term treatment for this problem Okay, and what's our final class? Our final class is everyone's favorite, grab bag. Grab bag, sweet. People have tried all sorts of things for insomnia. I bet you've heard of some of these. Antidepressants. So doxepin is one. That's a TCA like I mentioned earlier. Trazodone is also commonly used. That showed some short-term benefits in trials, although it wasn't actually FDA approved because it didn't have much long-term effect. There's also one particular risk notable in men. in Priapism. Which is... An erection lasting longer than four hours. Not good. So that's something to tell patients about if you're going to start them on trazodone. Antihistamines are commonly used. It's like Benadryl or diphenhydramine. These are sedating medicines. They kind of have generally like an anticholinergic effect. They have lots of side effects. In most of your over-the-counter sleep medicines like Tylenol PM or... NyQuil. Well, yeah, they're often using antihistamines because they kind of make you feel a little bit woozy and often just less with it, and therefore you can sort of fall asleep. Yeah. Antipsychotic medicines, some of them are sedating, especially if they're hitting those same histaminergic or H2 receptors. Something like quetiapine? That's exactly right. I wouldn't say this is my first choice of a good sleep medicine. Right, because like antipsychotics come with all the other adverse side effects of antipsychotics. Absolutely, and stay tuned to the next episode for more about that. 
people have used barbiturates in the past. We talked a lot about benzodiazepines, and they act in a similar way but cause their own host of problems like oversedation. Right. I mean, and there's a reason that barbiturates have fallen out of favor. They can be super deadly in overdose. And in fact, Judy Garland died of a barbiturate overdose that was accidental. And sad. And very sad, yes. There are lots of other things that people take over the counter, things you don't need a prescription for. Lots of herbal products. Again, not a ton of evidence. I mean, I do like my chamomile tea. So I want to sidebar this because I think it's useful. There are lots of things that people like. Warm glasses of milk, chamomile tea. I say go for it. I mean, that's not something that's harmful. And if you like this and this puts you to sleep, that's fine. I think it's hitting on a lot of this behavioral things that we talked about earlier. But if a behavior causes you to fall asleep and it's otherwise not harmful, go for it. Other herbal products, they're just generally not that much evidence for. And we talked about the melatonin receptor agonist. What about melatonin itself? That's a great question. So melatonin is a hormone. It's made in the pineal gland. Melatonin is fairly safe. Your body's already making this, so you're just taking more of it. It's more regulating your sleep and your wake cycles. And so it's, it's actually a little bit more useful if your cycle is out of whack. For instance, if you are jet lagged, so you're just not awake at the right time, or maybe you were just uh, like shifting from day to night shift. So it's more your phase that's out of whack than not being able to sleep. Melatonin usually won't make you fall asleep. It'll just sort of get your body in a more ready for sleep. I will say that melatonin is used sometimes for people with Parkinson's disorder who have a lot of REM sleep behaviors, like their behaviors they're having at night are also kind of out of whack. But again, it's not making them fall asleep. Mm-hmm. Finally, in the category of things that people use to make themselves fall asleep that are technically over the counter, alcohol. Oh, yeah, that's commonly self-prescribed. It certainly is. So if you have consumed a large amount of alcohol, you may be familiar with the fact that it can make you sleepy and often you fall asleep very quickly. And then you wake up the next day feeling terrible because you didn't sleep that well. Exactly. And so counterintuitive because people are like, well, this helps me fall asleep. So it is, in fact, causing sedation, but it's not very restful sleep. You are not having the same types of deep sleep that you would it causes a lot of sedation, so you're not holding open your airways much, so you're much more prone to having apnea and a kind of airway instability. I would not say there's a great long-term solution. Mm-hmm. Okay, you may be wondering, is there any evidence for any of this? I've- yeah, that's what I was wondering. I mean, we talked about how awesome those behavioral methods are. Where do these medications stack up? If you compared this medicine versus a placebo... There's more evidence that tonight you would fall asleep with one of these medicines. The amount of variation between that and the placebo is variable. A lot of the trials that have been done with sleep medicines are sponsored by the pharmaceutical industry, and there's also a fair amount of publication bias. Typically, they're tested for short term. We're talking like seven days. And so there's not a lot of data beyond that. And none of these medicines are FDA approved for long term use. There's also not a lot of data comparing one medicine versus another, because if you're a pharmaceutical company and you're trying to show that your drug is effective, you're likely to show that it's better than placebo, but you're less inclined to try it versus something else. So I'm not going to speak with great confidence about saying this medicine is a lot better than this other medicine. Yeah, fair enough. What are some of the side effects you might see from these medications? One side effect is drowsiness. 
that's logical. <laughs> yeah, that's that one. That one kind of makes sense. Some of them can cause sort of residual daytime sedation. So you're, you wake up and you're still feeling tired. They can cause you to feel dizzy and lightheaded. They can affect your ability to do tasks. They can cause you to be even coordinated. Most of them slow down your breathing. I'd call that a respiratory suppressant. Also, they tend to be habit forming. A lot of times people will stop this medicine and have what we call rebound insomnia, which is when you stop taking it and then your insomnia is really bad. You can imagine people could assume they can't sleep without the medication. They're doing worse without the medication. They need the medication. My insomnia is so bad. People will say, I know I need it because I stopped taking it and I couldn't sleep. Yeah. It's true that you're not sleeping, but it's false that this medicine was the only thing that was correcting it. One other side effect that I've heard a lot about is like these sleep behaviors where people are like wandering around sleepwalking, doing things. This started to come up, especially with the sedative hypnotics. And most commonly people have heard about it with Zolpidem or Ambien, especially because this is used a lot more. People were doing things like walking. They were driving their car. They were making phone calls. They were raiding their fridge and eating all this food. They were having sleep sex. It got a lot of attention and it's something that's worth considering. I often tell people that these things are possible. We can't predict who they will happen to or who it won't happen to. But it's important to think about, and it's a risk of taking this medicine. Melatonin agonists like Rameltion seem to have fewer side effects, although, again, a bit newer. The Orexin antagonists definitely cause some sedation and maybe a bit of next-day impairment. Some people have found some of the sleep behaviors with them as well. Okay, so we've talked about the different medication classes and talked kind of generally about side effects. How do we choose amongst all of these options? The best option is a behavioral approach, and that can look like a variety of things. Usually that looks like cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. That is recommended by all of the major organizations. So I would start with that. Sometimes that's something that you can refer people to and that's available in your community. A couple of links on the website to some of the recommendations so you can sift through them yourselves. There's also lots of programs for free that talk about cognitive behavioral therapy. Again, let us know. We can always chat more about that. I don't routinely jump to a medicine, especially when I'm talking to somebody in clinic and especially, especially in the long term. Here's the way to think about it. If you're not going to prescribe this medicine for more than seven days or seven pills, it's worth thinking about why you're using it because there isn't evidence to suggest that that's an effective strategy. Right, and it sounds like there are more effective alternative options. Right. That said, I do see value in using this in a place when sleep is really difficult. Like a red eye. I was thinking specifically about in the hospital. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> the red eye of being sick. It can be really hard to sleep in the hospital, and sometimes there's a lot of factors that are outside people's control. They're in unfamiliar places, and it's noisy, things like that. Although I will also say there are lots of medical issues which can interfere with this, and sleep medications in general can cause things like delirium, which we've talked about before, confusions, falls at nighttime, things like that. So they're not like totally benign medications that you'd want to throw at everyone in the hospital who's complaining of sleep issues. Absolutely. It's also worth thinking about the type of insomnia somebody has. For instance, you can imagine the difference between somebody who has problems falling asleep and somebody who has trouble staying asleep. 
Right. Like for the people who have difficulties falling asleep, you might want one of those medications you mentioned that have a very short half-life. Yeah. Like Zolpidem or Zeleplon or Remelteon. Yeah, because they tend to work faster and there's less residual the next day. What about for people who have trouble staying asleep? I would imagine you'd want one of the longer-acting medications like Ezoplicone or Doxepin or Suvorexant or the extended-release version of Zolpidem. Mm-hmm, for sure. There's some people that even if they're in this situation, they're really at high risk, and I would not consider these medications, especially here I'm talking about some of the sedative hypnotics, the Z-drugs, they're contraindicated in pregnancy because there's a risk of fetal malformations, particularly in the first trimester. People who are using alcohol, most of these medicines can reduce your respiratory drive, as can alcohol. There's a risk of not breathing. People with extensive kidney disease or liver disease, a lot of these are metabolized. There's this risk for them accumulating, causing excess sedation. We talked about that, for instance, with the benzodiazepines. People who also have problems breathing, people with obstructive sleep apnea, people with lung disease, that can make it harder for them to breathe. People who have to do things at night. That's you when you're on call and you're in the hospital. Not a great choice. Uh-uh. You're like, I just wish I could get some sleep. I've had that feeling before. But you have to be doing things and you have to be sharp. Makes sense. Yeah. So we've talked about choosing and I want to tell you about three patients and I want you to think about what strategy you might take for each of these three people. Ready? Sure. First, a 26-year-old man I met who was in the psychiatric hospital. He was inpatient because he'd been having suicidal ideation. He was having a lot of guilt. He was feeling like life was pretty worthless. He hadn't been going to work. We were treating him for depression. He'd been attending a lot of the groups on our unit. It's been two nights now. He has not slept well. He said it's too bright. He said there's people walking around. They check on him. Now he just feels really tired and he says he feels really out of it during the day and he's having trouble getting himself up enough to even go to the groups and pay attention. So if we were to start on a medication for him, you could consider something like trazodone. Others might think about Zolpidem or Ambien. I don't think that there's like a clear best answer here. You have to really think about the benefits of starting a medication and also the risks. Like the benefit is that promoting sleep would probably help this patient attend groups. And that's a good thing. That could be really helpful for the patient. The risk being that the patient might, I don't know, kind of become hooked on the medication and like want it for more than you're willing to prescribe it. So it'd probably be important to establish with the patient that you wouldn't be willing to give it to him for more than three nights or after discharge. Yeah, you really touched on weighing why you might use this. And in this case, it could be helpful. This guy's in the hospital. Right. He just needs something that's going to help him fall asleep so he can rest and improve during the day. All right, case number two. This is a 58-year-old woman I met, and she had chronic insomnia, years and years of insomnia, also a bunch of other health conditions. She had hypertension, hyperlipidemia. She had sleep apnea. She told me, I have never been a good sleeper. She often wakes up in the middle of the night, and then she's just awake for hours. Her husband was there, too, and she was like, yes, she wakes up, and sometimes I see her, and she's doing emails. She's on Facebook, and she's like, of course I am. I got to pass the time somehow. 
then she feels tired during the day and they've been fostering kids and so she said it's so hard to match their energy i'm just so tired i asked if she had tried any sleep meds she said she sometimes tries this medicine that she gets from the drugstore that says it's a sleep medicine when she just can't take it yeah, I mean, this is a lady that I would probably not be very inclined to start a medication for her. I'd really try to sell behavioral treatments like stimulus control and sleep coaching, CBTI. Her issue really is unlikely to be solved in seven days. Like this seems like it's been going on for quite some time. She also has OSA and there's a risk for respiratory depression if she were to take a med or even worsening of her apnea. Lots of medication interactions there. She's also a little bit older. She might not clear the drugs as well. And she has nighttime responsibilities looking after her young kids. I mean, she, you wouldn't want her to be kind of cognitively not able to do it because she was on a medication. So a behavioral treatment seems like really the way to go in this situation. I agree. I think it's easy when you're in clinic to say, wow, she's not sleeping. Like, here's this medicine that will help you sleep. But I agree with you. I don't think it's going to solve this problem and there's a lot of risks. Sometimes people tie together a medication at the very beginning of cognitive behavioral therapy because it can take a little bit of time for that to work, or sometimes it can take a little bit of time for somebody to see a cognitive behavioral therapist, but it also can be counterproductive if you get into this medicine's working and I'm not interested in changing my behaviors now. Third case. This is a 19-year-old man that I met in the emergency room. He'd been brought in by his brother because he was being really loud and he was shouting and he just seemed really paranoid. He was shouting about the police and he kept putting duct tape over his door. He had not been sleeping. His brother said the light was on 24 hours for the last few days, a week. When I went to talk to him, he really wasn't making that much sense. I was working overnight and he's just pacing and pacing the hallways. It was like 2 a.m. and he was just not sleeping. He did say that he wanted to get some sleep, but he seemed very awake and unlikely to sleep immediately. This is probably one of those situations where you'd think a lot more about starting a medication to help this guy. He's not sleeping, and I think that there's probably a number of reasons why that could be. His symptoms could fit with mania or psychosis, and there's lots of causes of psychosis. You know, he could have a psychotic disorder. This could be bipolar disorder. He could be on drugs. He could have some sort of medical illness causing these behavioral abnormalities. And so for him, I'd probably think about starting one of the more sedating antipsychotics like a lanzapine or even a benzo might be helpful here too. Absolutely. I agree. This is a situation where you're looking at this, you're thinking about wanting to get more information from him and also going for an alliance because he's somebody that's going to be difficult to talk to. And a medicine like olanzapine or some Ativan, lorazepam, maybe something that you can agree on because it's something you're both looking for. And he might be more clear and articulate afterwards. So today we've talked a lot about sleep in general. We talked about what sleeping is, how sleep works, why this episode has made you sleepy. And we've also tried to highlight some of the factors to consider if you're thinking about who or when you might start a sleep medication for versus some of the other strategies, which are things like behavioral approaches. We'll keep talking about psychiatric medications. Stay tuned next time. We're talking about antipsychotics. 
in the meanwhile, you can check out our website and let us know what you'd like to hear more about. Our website is www.psychessentials.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and on Twitter. We're at Psych Essentials. Our music is by Javier Suarez off his album Tumbling Dishes. There's a link on our website. As always, people, places, details were changed to protect confidentiality. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Till next time. Bye.